to this Martin Bailey Photography Podcast. Episode number 47. Welcome to this week's episode. Last week we visited Oirase in the Aomori Prefecture where I spent a few days shooting a few weeks ago, which for the sake of listeners that catch up on the archives when this episode is old, was from the 10th to the 12th of July 2006. On the afternoon of the 12th, I headed over to Hachinohe, the port uh, at which I was going to board the ferry for the seven-hour journey to my favorite part of Japan, Hokkaido. Hokkaido is the island that you can see at the very top of the map of Japan. Uh, if you use something like Google Earth to see a map of Japan, just search for Japan uh, and then zoom out so that you can actually see it. And Hokkaido is the at the very top there. Uh, and on most maps, uh, including Google Earth, will show you at least the capital city of Hokkaido, which is Sapporo. Uh, well, the ferry that I took arrives at a port called uh, Tomakomai, which is just east, east of Sapporo along the coast. Uh, down from Sapporo, that is, but on the coast. Um, obviously, it's a ferry. <laughs> and uh, it's just a few hours' drive, really, from the scenic towns of Furano and Bie, uh, where I... Uh, spent the first few days and the very last day of my trip by this time. Uh, we pick up the trail today with some images from these first few days. Because I planned this trip just a few weeks uh, before actually going, I ended up in a hotel pretty far from the towns I was interested in, which are, as I just uh, mentioned, Furano and BA. This meant that there was still a good hour or so's drive uh, to these towns in the morning and back home again in the evening. Uh, but uh, on the first day, I set out from the hotel at around 6am, uh, that was the 14th of July, and arrived at my first location, which was Farm Tomita, if I remember correctly, at around 7.30am. I'd actually visited this uh, place at roughly the same time um, last year, but about two weeks earlier, I think, uh, with the Japanese photographer Yoshiaki Kobayashi. Uh, you'll have heard me talk about uh, Kobayashi-sensei in the uh, podcast on the February trip uh, that I took to Hokkaido as well. Um, but that's actually the third time uh, that I'd been to Hokkaido with uh, Kobayashi-sensei. The first one was February of 2004, uh, July 2005, the one I just mentioned, and then again this year in February. Uh, I know that uh, Kobayashi-sensei also listens to this podcast, so uh, thanks very much for all your help on the tours and also for the advice and uh, planning uh, with this trip uh, as well. It's very, very much appreciated. I guess this brings me to uh, a point, actually, that I hadn't planned to talk about, um, but come to think of it, uh, I probably should mention. Networking with other photographers uh, and gathering information on your locations and the conditions that you're likely to find when you get there uh, via the internet as well as um, via you know, people that you know that know the areas is pretty important uh, when putting together your uh, travel itinerary. For example, uh, last week I mentioned that the leaves in Oirase were going to be uh, new and fresh at this time of the year, but I had gained that information by searching for that uh, on the internet on a number of websites. 
Likewise, I'd asked Kobayashi-sensei about the best times to visit uh, some of the venues which I plan to visit this time, which really, really did help a lot as well. I, myself, uh, often receive email from photographers planning to visit Japan about the best times of year and uh, you know where to go, and also that sometimes they'll have specific locations and they, they want to know more about uh, you know the the condition what the conditions will be like or other attractions in the area stuff like that one of the things uh, that i really do like about photography is that i find uh, very few people that i interact with at least uh, that are secretive about uh, where to go and when i know that this happens in some circles but uh, the way i see it uh, i don't own many of the things that i photograph or the techniques that i use for that matter the subjects I shoot are either totally natural scenes or, or beings uh, that are just part of the scheme of things, or they are things that have been put there by people uh, that we are allowed to photograph, as with some of the flower shots uh, we'll look at in a moment. The thing is, if you show the same scene to a hundred different photographers and ask them to give you one print from their shoot, you will no doubt get a hundred different unique images back. Unless you are there at the same time, people are likely to shoot the scene under different conditions, with different focal lengths and different exposures, uh, from different camera positions, etc. Too. There is a multitude of variables that makes the end product uh, different, and the biggest vari variable of all is the human element. Every person that looks at a scene will view it through their own personal filter uh, of the world, that is. This is a, 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 a tangent, not a tangible thing. Um, I'm talking about a logical filter. The way, the, the way we see the world is not only based on the physical thing that we're looking at, uh, but our perception of that subject is heavily influenced by everything that's happened to us from the moment we are born perhaps even before that, uh, for perhaps even from when we're with, uh, within our mother's womb, uh, but until the moment we release the shutter um, to make our exposure. Even identical twins are shaped by the, uh, the experiences that they have in their lives to, the, to that point, and therefore will probably shoot uh, different images. Also, uh, if we shot 10, 20, maybe even 100 or so shots of the scene, when asked to choose just one to show others, each individual is again likely to select a different type of image. One may select a sweeping vista, the other may select a macro shot. Uh, you know, we might see a small yet distant part of the scene cropped out of the vista with a telephoto lens. The possibilities are probably infinite. Of course, in addition to what I, Martin Bailey, bring to my own work, uh, from a compositional or artistic perspective, there's the technical side. Having a mastery of your equipment and photographic techniques may give you the edge over the less confident or technically adept photographer fumbling with his or her gear while the opportunity is lost. Of course, the beginner is going to produce the odd pearl. If they didn't, they would quickly lose interest in photography as they lack the feeling of accomplishment and also the praise that we get from others when we show them our work uh, and we need this to fuel our desire to continue to learn this art in and it, you know that the many uh, various aspects of it uh, which probably can be termed as a science in many ways as much as an art 
However, as we do become more technically adept as well as artistically, uh, we find that uh, producing more good images and more consistently becomes much easier. The way I see it, uh, most of what I know and practice in my photography right now is based on stuff that I have learned from other photographers, either first-hand, uh, like the things that I've learned from Kobayashi-sensei on his photography tours, or directly from the books and uh, magazines that I've, I've read, and also from the internet, uh, like uh, from you guys on the Martin Bailey Photography Forum. Uh, there are, there's always going to be a certain amount uh, that I've, uh, I've thought of myself, but <laughs> the chances are that in this big wide world, it's already been thought of by someone else anyway. So being secretive and keeping my own knowledge to myself is really a, a myth, uh, because it's, it's not uh, my knowledge. It's knowledge uh, from a century or so of photographic exploration and I'm just holding it, uh, or, or some of it, temporarily. Not passing this information on, uh, in my mind, would be an incredibly wasteful thing to do, if not selfish. Also, for me to continue to grow as a photographer, both technically and artistically, I need to continue to gather information from others, as uh, I have, you know, I'm nowhere near the end of my journey. I'm probably much closer to the beginning of my journey as a photographer, uh, than anywhere near uh, the end. So, you know, I really just um, need to continue, as we all do, to learn more and more. And so, without people continuing to share their knowledge, either directly or in the form of books and other learning aids, the information flow would stop and we'd all be stifled and start to stagnate. For something that I'd not really planned to say, this is turning out quite long, but to summarise before we move on, I believe that in both gathering and sharing information openly, we should have the confidence to know that what we do will be different, uh, even if only slightly from other, what others do. Uh, in some cases, we might enter a situation where we'll want to mimic a famous view of a certain place. That's fine too, at least uh, from, you know, say if you want something for your own personal records, or, or you just really want to see if you can take something as... Um, you know, greater photogra uh, photographers have before you. Um, you may well end up with something that is even better than the original version. Uh, you'll, you'll lack the originality because it'll be something that's already out there, but a good photo stands out as a good photo. So I don't think that there is anything wrong with uh, copying people. I'm starting to digress again. Uh, once you've made um, that shot, uh, try and experiment and take it further and this is when uh, your own filter of the world will come in, giving your own work uh, your own personal touch. And if you're confident in your own artistic and technical abilities, then I don't think that you should be worried too much about sharing your own knowledge as well, because everyone is going to bring their own personal touch to their work. And this will separate out the good photographers from the not-so-good and in kind of like a natural selection. So... I really don't think that you need to worry about uh, about sharing your, your knowledge. And really, I guess the other thing is, is that I just touched on, I said your knowledge, when really the, the chances are it's not your knowledge. It's knowledge that you learn from someone else. So kind of sharing that and as a thank you to the person that uh, relayed that knowledge onto you, uh, that's, that's one of the other reasons really why I like to share mine, uh, because, uh, you know, I'm grateful for the people who, 
that either told me things directly or wrote the books, the magazines, or participated in the forum and passed on their knowledge to me. So there's a thank you in there as well. So at the farm Tomita, uh, there is a field on a hill in which they plant rows of different coloured flowers and plants. The field is the standard for the holiday brochures and much of the publicity for the area. When I visited this spot in August 2003, in my own first visit to Hokkaido, I didn't even find the field. Um, I wasn't really looking that much, although I was aware of this scene from the, the brochures, etc. Uh, but I, uh, I probably would have found that it was too late to capture it in its glory anyway. I know I would have been. Um, I was a month or so late uh, when I went over to uh, Hokkaido the first time. Uh, when I went back on the 2nd of July in 2005, we were around two or three weeks possibly too early. The red band um, that you'll see in a photo that I'll show you later, um, it'll be in maybe a week or two when we get around to it, uh, but the, the red band of poppies was not there when I went in 2005, so in general the image was pretty drab and uninteresting, uh, to me at least. I'm not going to include the image uh, in the podcast today for that reason, but if you want to take a look at it, um, it's uh, number 674 on my website. By the way, um, you may well hear some strange noises in the background in uh, today's podcast. Uh, it's kind of the weather here in Tokyo now where it's not quite hot enough to put the air conditioning on and it's not cold enough to... Um, hang out without the windows open. So I've I've got the the windows open in my apartment here. Um, I'm I'm sitting here hot because I I don't want to turn the fan on to keep myself uh, cool because you'll hear the you'll hear the fan whirring away. But I can hear some noise outside as I'm as I'm talking. So uh, forgive me for the uh, the background noise that you may well hear throughout the the podcast. So uh, I went back to the. Um, the field with the po the poppies um, in Furano this year on the 14th and the the poppies had started to bloom and the scene was very much how I wanted to shoot it but not quite there. Again I realised that the timing of my visit was a little early and I'd kind of expected that as the weather had not been as good uh, this year um, we've, we've had lots of cold spells and a lot more rain than usual. So I could see though that the field was very close. One more week and it would be perfect. So I bore this in mind over the next few days and I actually changed my plans uh, and extended the trip by one day so that I could come back here one more time before getting the ferry back to the mainland the following week. I'll discuss the results of this uh, final day shoot in the last episode of this series. Um, it'll probably be in... I doubt it will be next week, it'll be the week after or maybe the week after that if this, uh, if this has to stretch out to four episodes. Uh, for now, let's look at something that I did shoot here on the very first uh, day uh, of the same field uh, and that is image number 1049. You can see here how sparsely the poppies are blooming, um, a fair amount but not, uh, not a full coverage. I love this particular photo though and it is different from the majority of shots of this field that I've seen. So the result of what I initially found disappointing uh, is uh, really uh, something that I'm very very pleased with and to have visited at this time uh, is, is what helped that to happen. So everything you know, all turns out well in the end. 
In the background, you can see the violet, pale white, dark green and light green, and then the orange and purple stripes uh, that color the hill and the undulation of the hill itself. But I've used my new 70 to 200 millimeter f2.8 lens wide open to throw even the poppies in the background out of focus, turning them into just red blotches. I shot this scene at a number of different apertures, and I actually was torn between this shot and the other extreme, the f22 version. But I was drawn to this shot uh, by the single pale pink poppy in the field, uh, in the field of red there. And, you know, that's what I was focusing on. Uh, that's what drew me to the shot initially. So to draw the viewer's attention to that rather than the entire scene, I chose this version. I also find the red uh, blotches more aesthetic than a sharp image, even though uh, that the sharper image is, uh, does have more to look at. Another thing to note here is that I've, I've gone around the back of the hill and I'm looking through a line of trees um, down the hill for this shot. It's the line of trees that you can normally see um, along the, the top, uh, the right-hand side of the, the shot that I'm talking about. And, you know, I had to make that shot myself. Um, it was there, um, and hopefully I've made a good version of it, so I'll show you that, like I say, in a later episode. The designated spot uh, for your shooting, actually, um, they have a little, like a white fence that says you can't shoot in there after 8.30 a.m., um, because that's where people are to stand to take their I've been to farm tometer shot. Um, that also is at the far end of the of the field from where I'm standing taking this particular image. The image was shot without uh, any exposure compensation in aperture priority mode, uh, as there is nothing challenging exposure-wise. And as I said, the aperture was wide open at f2.8 with a shutter speed of one thousandth of a second and an ISO of 100. The other thing to note about this shot is that the landscape picture style does make the reds very velvia. This won't mean much at all to those that have never shot velvia slide film, uh, but it very, has very saturated reds and is rumoured to be what the, uh, this particular picture style is based on. The problem with this picture style, and to a similar degree with velvia film itself, is that the reds get um, oversaturated quite easily. Uh, I, I tend to want to use the word blown out for these colours, um, although I know that blown out is usually used for white highlights, uh, and there's probably a, a better word, maybe oversaturated is the correct word, but basically the result is that um, you know the, the detail is lost in um, basically something that is blown out even though it's a bright red that remains on the film or, or in the, the, uh, the image that the sensor captures. This means that you, know, you basically lose all of the detail in that patch of colour and you end up with unnatural fringing too. In the past to overcome this, I started changing the picture style to standard from landscape, which tones down the colours uh, and prevents this from happening. Uh, remember though that I... Um, I shoot nothing but raw, and so I can change this, uh, you know, without uh, degrading the image at all. And you know, basically, the the results um, I can I can look at the results in post processing and make that decision at that time. Uh, the problem with this with doing this right now, though, is that it tones down the colours throughout the image, and I don't want that. 
I was a Velvia shooter in my film days, and I do prefer nice saturated colours for my work. Uh, for the most of my work, that is. So what I did for this, um, and for the next image that we'll look at as well, was in Photoshop I created a saturation adjustment layer and lowered the um, just the red, I selected the red from the pull down and I lowered the saturation by 20, so minus 20 for the red. And what that does, of course, is it lowers the red saturation for the entire image. Uh, but again, I don't want that either. So there are only a few areas that I um, found oversaturated, and I just want to see the effect on those areas. To do that, I added a mask to the adjustment layer by clicking the mask, mask button on the layer palette, and then I fill the layer uh, with black uh, to hide the, uh, the effects across the image, and then I paint in, in white, um, to reveal just the areas uh, that I have made minus 20 saturation for the red. And that allows me to selectively tone down uh, the blown out areas or the oversaturated areas. Let's also take a look at image number uh, 1051, as I use that technique with this image too. I've toned down some of the reds in the blurred poppies in the foreground and the background, but the reason I wanted to look at this image is because, in this case, even parts of the main subject uh, the, on the right there were oversaturated. It's not easy to see in this small-sized web, uh, the web-sized version, but uh, there are some water drops on the bottom of the main subject's petals, and around this area um, was way too red, and to the point where some of the details in the, not the shadows, but the texture, of the of the petals um, and the water droplets themselves were lost. When I was uh, using the same technique that I just explained to lower the saturation on these highlights, I could actually watch the detail and the texture of the petals drop back in before my eyes. So what this has allowed me to do is to keep the overall incredibly rich red that attracted me to the subject in the first place, but at not at the cost of oversaturated highlights. On the technical side, I was working very close to the camera's minimum focusing distance here. I closed the aperture down to 5.6 to, to get the whole head of the flower in focus, and I had minus one stop of exposure compensation as the background was pretty dark, and this uh, would also have overexposed the flowers. This resulted in a shutter speed of uh, 800th of a second with ISO 100. Due to the harsh sunlight by now, I was using a large reflector positioned at the bottom left of the frame in relation to the shot to bounce some light back into the shadows of the poppy. If you take a look at the, uh, the time uh, I shot this image, it was actually only 8.39am, but the sunrise is around 4am in Japan at this time of year, so... Um, I was already well out of the, the golden hours. In the next image, which is number 1053, we can see what at first might appear to be a composite image. We have a line of trees climbing a hill, uh, but with stri uh, the striking thing about this is that the hill itself is not green, but violet. This is the original field of lavender that is responsible for the success of the farmtometer. 
There is a plaque near here explaining uh, all of this, but some 50 years ago, uh, the, the bottom had dropped out of the lavender market and the owner of the farm was in his tractor ready to plough up this field. He just couldn't bring, to, bring himself to do it though, and he left it as it was, just for its uh, sheer beauty, I would imagine. All of the other farms in the area had stopped growing lavender and threw away their seeds, uh, except for this one farmer. A number of years later, the market came back, and then as Japan uh, became a wealthier country and people started to enjoy traveling around the country more, this became a tourist spot. Uh, I don't know the figures. Uh, I don't even know if what I'm telling you is accurate here. Um, this is not from the plaque, uh, but it would not surprise me if uh, now this guy um, or his family um, do not make more from selling ice creams, um, somewhat overpriced melons and dried flowers, uh, ornaments and things uh, from the tourist uh, shops, you know, the souvenir shops, um, to the tourists that come here. Um, they probably make more from these things now than they do from directly from lavender or, or lavender oil, um, you, know, for, you know, for which the farm itself is famous. The farm is still a working farm, and you can see them making lavender oil in one of the buildings uh, still today, but I'm sure this is no longer the main source of income. Um, it's kind of become like a museum. You can go in and actually watch them making it, so it's, it's still working, but very much uh, tourist-oriented. Uh, this image was shot at f11 for 1 13th of a second at ISO 100. Minus uh, two-thirds of a stop exposure compensation stopped the trees and the field from becoming overexposed. Uh, this would have happened because of the shadows in the trees, I guess. Uh, apart from that, there's nothing special technically about this image. Note that I aligned the intersection of the diagonal hill uh, with the trees at the bottom right-hand corner of the frame, though, to create a, a triangle in, of the lavender field in the, uh, in the, in the frame. Uh, for the next shot, although I did have my 100-400mm lens in my vest pocket, I decided to try my new 70-200mm f2.8 IS lens with the 1.4 extender, uh, making it 98 or virtually 100-280mm. Uh, the image is uh, number 1057. And I was actually surprised uh, as I put the, the extender on the, on the lens to find that uh, not only does the center focusing point work with this extender, but all of the focusing points still work. I guess this is because uh, even with the extender, we're still at f4 uh, throughout the focal length of the range uh, the, fo the focal length range of the lens. Uh, but this was a nice surprise. The not-so-nice thing was that uh, I had actually tried contact lenses for this trip, and I'm going to drag digress just one more time here, uh, but I'd tried contract contact lenses for this trip to get rid of the problem of light entering the finder uh, through the gap between my eyes and my glasses, and I was experiencing uh, unbelievably bad headaches through the first few days. Um, it started in Oirase, and at the end of this uh, day, I think it was, I actually stopped using the contact lenses um, and the headaches cleared up a day or so later. Uh, but at the point of shooting this, uh, I remember feeling that uh, it was very, very difficult to keep my creative juices flowing. 
Having said that, uh, it was also very difficult to walk away from the fields of various flowers that the people here at the farm tomato uh, plant for the pleasure of the tourists that flock here uh, each day in the summer. I love the oranges uh, playing off the white, uh, the pale whites in this image. Uh, I focused on the orange poppy sticking out of the bat in the foreground here and I used an aperture of f4 to render the poppies in the background uh, as orange blotches uh, as opposed to you know again like I said earlier uh, as opposed to using a smaller aperture and allowing you to see all of the detail. As the shot is mainly white I added two-thirds uh, exposure compensation to prevent uh, underexposure and keep the oranges bright. Uh, the ISO was 100 and the shutter speed 1 400th of a second. After a lavender flavoured ice cream and buying two packs of, of two melons at $25 a pop, um, which hopefully will make you uh, cringe as much as it does myself, uh, so what's that? That's $100 for four melons. Uh, they they taste good. Um, I actually went back, like I said, the week later, and I bought two from from me and my better half to to eat at home. Uh, the first four were for friends and family that we sent via um, like a a courier. Uh, but the uh, basically we bought some melons, um, and then we headed off to BA, uh, a twenty or thirty minute drive north of Ferrano. Uh, BA is uh, or was made famous uh, as a scenically beautiful place uh, really by the photographer Shinzo Maeda. Unfortunately uh, Shinzo Maeda passed away a few years ago uh, but he left the Takushinkan uh, which is a or his photo gallery. Uh, there are also a few fields of flowers here um, a small path to walk amongst uh, some silver birch trees. Uh, it's literally just a, a few hundred a uh, few hundred feet um, around the path but it makes a nice change, and it was actually quite cool under there, uh, in the uh, under the broken canopy of leaves uh, that we'll take a look at now in image number one zero five eight. For this image, I used my sixteen to thirty five f two point eight lens at seventeen millimeters and pointed it up, probably at around eight degrees angle um, from the ground, uh, not quite straight up, uh, so that you can see. Uh, the trunks of many of the trees in the foreground, but also uh, trees from my side and from behind me. Uh, also, uh, they all, you know, they they just cut converge into the shot uh, with a similar effect as as a a 360 degree panorama. This was shot at 125, uh, 126, sorry, p.m. And you might be able to to make out that the sun was almost directly overhead uh, in the top third of this shot here. To stop the trees and the leaf from being over, uh, underexposed, I added two stops of exposure compensation here. This meant that I was basically um, turning the, the almost blue sky uh, totally white, uh, and you know, basically I had to do that to keep the greens in the leaves and the tree trunks uh, white as well. An aperture of uh, f8 is plenty to render most of the shot in focus uh, at 17mm focal length and I didn't want to go much smaller as the shutter speed was already 1 40th of a second and I was hand holding. I could have gone slower I guess um, using the focal length to shutter speed rule 
um, but uh, it really wasn't necessary at this depth of field um, or, to, or to get this depth of field um, at this focal length. Now the shot uh, in number, let's see, 1059 is about as far as I currently like to go in Photoshop with uh, regards to manipulating images. Uh, this was shot towards the end of the first day uh, that started in Furano and was now ending in BA. I was standing atop of a hill, um, maybe five minutes or so by car from the Takushinkan, which I just mentioned, um, and I was looking out across some of the rolling hills which have made this uh, this area famous, uh, with the help of, of Shinzo Maeda, as I say, and I was looking out across an amazingly dramatic sky. The problem was, was there were three stops difference between the correctly exposed sky and a correctly exposed uh, foreground, the hills. With a nice line across the distant mountain tops, this was a perfect candidate for a neutral density filter, uh, a gradual neutral density filter shot, which uh, until recently I would have done. But now I prefer to shoot two images, uh, one for the highlights and one for the shadows and merge them in Photoshop. I allow myself to do this from a photography ethics perspective because really you, it's just doing the same thing that you can do with the uh, gradual uh, neutral density filter. Um, but it, it allows you to fine-tune where you join the two images. Uh, it also uh, makes me work faster in the field. I don't need to mess around getting out my gradual NDs and lining them up, etc. What you see here is two images, uh, both shot at f16, with the sky exposed for uh, 160th of a second, and the hills exposed for 25th of a second. I've reduced the saturation of the hills uh, slightly, as them being correctly exposed made them quite green. Uh, the method was similar to uh, the one I mentioned earlier for merging the two, I applied a mask to the sky, um, which was pasted in as a layer uh, from, from the second shot, and then painted over the sky with white to, to gradually reveal it, leaving the hills concealed, the, dark, the hills that were too uh, dark in the, in the well-exposed sky shot. And basically that allowed me to, to leave the correctly exposed hills in the first shot, uh, and then just show you the, the best parts of the two. Note that I'd switched to manual mode uh, from some test shots to find out how many stops difference there was between the, uh, the sky and the hills. And then just basically shot uh, a number of images, uh, pairs of images with the three stops difference from then on as the sky changed and you know, the, the drama revealed itself before me. This is the pair that I chose to use. Uh, I would draw the line uh, at using a sky from a totally different time from the hills, as this is something that I could not do with a physical uh, gradual neutral density filter. Uh, this is just my own personal rules, really, my own ethics, and uh, you don't have to agree with them. The following day, I went back to the BA area and just had a lazy day driving around the hills, uh, picking out areas of interest to shoot like the uh, close-up of some barley that we can see in image number 1063. 
There's nothing really technically challenging about this shot. It was um, made with my new baby, the 70-200mm f2.8. Uh, wide open again at f2.8 for uh, one 2,500th of a second at ISO 100. I'm really just playing with the textures of the barley against the, the golden backdrop uh, that the wide aperture creates for us. I've shot a number of other uh, images, uh, including one that I've uploaded from right across the way from here where I shot this shot. And uh, I, as I uh, did this, as I did last week, I'll include a link in the show notes uh, for all of the images uh, from the Hokkaido trip so far. Uh, right now I've only managed to process the first two days worth of shots uh, but the same link will start to show you more images as I get them uploaded so uh, you'll eventually be able to see all of the shots from the eight days I was in Hokkaido uh, by the time I've completed this series. The following day I was going to head off to a different part of Hokkaido uh, but for today let's close with one last shot uh, which is number 1064 of the sun reflecting in the corner of a, a rice paddy at the end of the second day. This was shot at 5.20pm around uh, 1 hour 50 minutes before sunset. So the sun was still high enough in the sky to uh, not only clear the hill that was uh, about to, it was about to fall behind, but also to reflect back at me in the water of the, the paddy field. Shot at uh, f16 for 130th of a second ISO 100. This is a simple composition, but the repeating patterns make for a pleasing image. There's actually a line of uh, rice shoots coming in from the bottom left as well at an angle to break up the monotony. And uh, then, as I say, the sun reflecting in there adds a nice touch. Uh, you'll also notice a touch of flare in the bottom right below the sun's reflection, but this doesn't bother me too much. Uh, and I perhaps even like it being there uh, to add to the effect of the, the bright sun. So I hope you've enjoyed spending the first two days of the Hokkaido leg of my trip uh, with me today. I will be continuing to talk about the trip for the next two or three weeks until I've covered all of the shots that I uh, intend to talk about. Uh, obviously not every shot from the from the trip uh, and I will continue to talk from a technical or and or artistic point of view uh, and maybe sometimes just uh, add shots just because I like them and want to share them with you I've still gotten through um, only the first few days really of the post-processing uh, so there's there's a fair bit to go, so I, I can't really say right now how many episodes uh, it will take to complete the series. I was reminded over the weekend that the Podcast Awards nominations had been uh, announced, and unfortunately this podcast was not included. If you voted, thanks for trying. Uh, this is very, very much appreciated. And I'm not all that cut up about this. Uh, in fact, I've not even really followed it after asking you to vote. Uh, which is really my bad. I'm not doing a great job of marketing this podcast. But having said that, uh, it's really a time thing. Uh, just preparing uh, for this podcast each week and getting it recorded and published uh, really eats up a lot of my spare time. So I need your help to make this podcast the best that it can be. And to do that, we need to grow it. 
I hear constantly how much you guys enjoy the podcast, uh, you like the content and the delivery, etc. And you definitely want me to continue. Many of you have told me that you have subscribed to many photography podcasts and this remains your favourite. You know, wow, that's, that's just a huge compliment. I know that uh, many of you try hard to spread the word and I am infinitely grateful to you for this. But without a much larger audience uh, base, our listener base, we really are, aren't going to even make a dent against some of the other shows that uh, this is coming up against when uh, we, we start talking about things like the podcast awards or the uh, podcast alley votes, etc. Uh, in one month's time, will be a year old. Uh, the first episode was released on the 1st of September 2005. So let's try and give the show a boost as the first birthday uh, comes up. Maybe it's like a birthday present for this, uh, for this podcast by getting a serious amount of uh, word spreading done. As I asked last week, uh, please think of any friends or family that you can think about, um, think of uh, that may be interested in this podcast, people that are interested in photography, uh, or maybe even people that are interested in Japan, because I talk about Japan a fair amount in the in the photography as well, in, in addition to the photography as well. So forward a link to martinbaileyphotography.com or a link directly to the podcast page to anyone you can think of. Uh, there's also a small button that you can copy from a post in the forum uh, and then link back to this site. Uh, if you have a website of your own, uh, put a link uh, in there back to this site and that would also help to, to drive people over here and hopefully increase the, the listener base. Uh, I'll put a link to that, uh, to that forum post in the show notes. So it would be great if we can see a jump in listeners uh, next month for the first anniversary and finally start to be in with a chance to make a dent in the photography podcast scene. I hope I'm not overstepping my mark by asking you guys to do this and I humbly request your assistance. Thanks again for listening today. Have a great week doing whatever you do. Bye bye.